Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. If you are newer to this podcast, you might not know that there is a previous episode also on Purity Culture. It is episode number 22. And that interview was with Tina Sellers, a sex and marriage therapist. And so it has a little bit of a different focus, more biology, a bit more of a therapeutic lens. You can listen to either episode first. I don't think it really matters, but just wanted to let you know about that. This here was an incredible conversation, one of my favorites I've had in a long time. And there was a bit more freedom and it was less structured uh, than usual. And that allowed us to really explore, especially this idea of what comes next and what's getting in the way of figuring out what comes after purity culture. Linda K. Klein, my guest today, is an author, speaker, and she's spent many years in the communications and nonprofit worlds. Let's just get into it. Linda, 
I want to start by just kind of saying something for the sake of the listener, because, you know, a lot of people are critical of the church. A lot of people are critical of certain ways that they grew up. And a lot of times that criticism is coming from basically a place of being beyond the church or beyond faith. And I think it's helpful to note that that's not the case for you. Like later on, I'm going to ask you about how your your own faith has changed and how you would describe your faith now, but you are still a Christian. And I think that's worth saying up top so that people sort of hear this in a spirit of love. It's sort of like uh, criticizing your own family while staying in the family, as opposed to criticizing someone else's family. I mean, do you, do you think that is my intuition right there? Do you think? Yeah. You know, there were a lot of years, if I'm going to be honest with you, in which it was complicated for me to call myself a Christian. Sure. So uh, the one sort of caveat that I have around that is the word still, you know, it, it really wasn't a constant for me. It was something where I had grown up with a very strict definition of what it meant to be a Christian. And when everything fell apart, you know, I, I didn't know if there was any place for me within Christianity. And so for a very long time, I considered myself uh, an ex-evangelical is the term that I used, actually, which is interesting because now it's sort of popularized as its own term, the ex-evangelical. But years and years before that, you know, when I left, all I knew was that there was a part of me that was enough that thing that it still needed to be part of my title (laughs) and part of my self-understanding. And yet I was so not that thing. So all I knew was that is really important and I am not that. Right? Yeah. And, I mean, I, I totally get it. I'm going through something very similar where it, it's, it all just depends on sort of what you realize when in terms of the labeling process. Right. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, I'm sure that plenty of people that grew up with me would say, I'm not a Christian at all today, but I pretty obviously think I am. Um, and so it all depends on what counts and uh, and I'm I'm still going through a process of thinking through a lot of those definitions and what counted as Christian. And some of the things that were most central to the faith I was given are now the things I disagree with the strongest. But then I'm finding alternate understandings that still fall within the umbrella of Christianity mm-hmm. that existed for hundreds of years that my subculture ignored and said weren't Christian. And it's just it, it's it's unendingly complicated and it depends on your situation and all that stuff. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I think for me, being able to claim the term Christian really came because I was able to define, you know, what, what Christianity meant for me differently than what it had meant when I was growing up. So, I mean, I agree. There are people who would certainly consider me not a Christian anymore. Um, Some of the people I grew up with, I'm sure that having been said, you know, this is a huge, huge part of my life and part of my identity and part of my faith. And, you know, and I have given myself permission to use your title of your podcast, right? I've given myself permission to own my own faith. You know, one of the ways I sometimes talk about it is I let go of someone else's faith and I found my own, right? This is, this is my faith in, um, in, in a, in a culture and in a community and in a, um, religion that has, um, been a part of me the whole time. So, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, you talked a little bit about it it being my family, right? Like I'm still part of the family. And I would say even when I, even before I had claimed Christianity as a word, and even before I was able to call myself a Christian again, 
it was still my family. These were still my people, you know, and you can really see that reflected in the fact that I still had evangelical even as part of my title, you know, as I tried to understand who I am, it was still a, a huge part of me. There, there was no, for me, there was no cutting off of that was my old life. Those were my old people. Um, that was my old, um, self. And now I'm beginning again. It was something much, much more, gooey and sticky and <laughs> and difficult in some ways um, that had to do with kind of um, uh, doing exactly what you're doing, which is pulling apart, you know, what pieces of this do I still want to hold on to and what pieces of this uh, do I desperately need to let go of for the sake of my life to survive? Right. Yeah. And a big part of that is determining which things are actually sort of part of capital C Christianity and can't be removed, uh, spoiler, very few, and which of which things are culturally conditioned uh, to our particular expression of Christianity that we have been given or that we uh, converted into or whatever. And purity culture uh, is maybe, for, for people who grew up in my zeitgeist, might be the biggest and most all-pervasive one that is the least biblically grounded to use the, the terminology mm. that would have mattered that like hits the most parts of people's lives um, mm. with just mm. like very, very few verses, even as reference points. How do you define purity culture? Sure. Uh, purity culture is the culture that was created by what I would call the purity movement and the subsequent purity industry. So we're talking about purity pledges, purity rings, purity balls, purity themed pop music, purity themed books, rallies, events. I could go on and on. Um, but you know, there was this uh, period of time between the late 1980s and the 2000s where you really saw, and when I say the 2000s, I'm particularly talking until like about 2008, nine. you really saw a proliferation of this purity movement and industry born out of the white American evangelical Christian church that absolutely doused a generation of people who were raised within it in the purity message and spread that uh, to, to secular society, to other religious expressions, to other Christian expressions, both within the United States and abroad. Now, purity culture is the culture that is created by that movement. Now, the question of whether purity culture existed before the movement, you know, is, a, I think, an interesting one and that kind of an open one, right? What I will say is that what certainly existed before the movement was a culture of deep sexual shaming and gender-based control that I would say is a societal reality and deeply embedded into the church. And that was the foundation upon which the purity movement was built, the purity industry was built, and you know upon which purity culture is built. Um, but to give you a little bit of a sense of what the qualities of purity culture are, uh, the whole thing is rooted in this idea that people and women and girls in particular are either pure or they are impure. Now, everything associated with purity uh, would be things like Christian, <laughs> lovable, valuable, holy, right? Going to have a healthy marriage, uh, all of these kinds of ideas. And then everything associated with impurity were things like 
you know, lucky if any good Christian man ever loved you, uh, being bad, being damaged, being dangerous, being a threat to the community. So you had organized all of society uh, and particularly, you know, evangelical Christians and particularly girls and women within that, you know, by this categorization, are you pure? Are you impure? And the way in which people are assessed as pure or impure was very complicated and depended on who you were talking to, because the thing about evangelical Christianity that's different from some other Christian expressions is that it's a faith that is rooted in the heart you know, it's it's whether or not you are a Christian, according to evangelical belief system, isn't about what you do, right? It's about what you believe. It's about your heart. <laughs> it's about motivations, right? And and that's a very difficult thing to assess. So when you're when that's your belief system, that what's inside is what really really matters. You know, assessing whether or not someone's pure uh, based on. Yeah, based on what they do is just insufficient, right? So purity culture requires you you not just to be sexually abstinent, but you have to be truly sexless in your mind and in your heart. And you can never inspire any sexual thoughts in others, particularly if you're a woman or a girl. That's something that's brought up a lot. And everyone's always trying to guess at your purity, to guess at your heart, based on whatever it is they see, right? Oh, you're, oh, you're close friends with that guy. You know, I, you're risking both of your purity, right? You know, whatever right. it is that they because think. Because sexuality has so many overt, covert, explicit, implicit. It's such a central part of human culture and human social culture that like, if you want to gossip about sexuality, for instance, you will never run out of possible things to say to your friend while gossiping about it. It's in eye contact, it's in body movement, it's in clothing, it's since we can't really know someone's heart, because that's also part of Christian theology, we can't, only God sees the heart, but we see all these expressions of their sexuality and their physical choices and the way they speak and the tone of voice and, you know, all that stuff. So it's a, it's a proxy is what you say in the book, right? That's right. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of in women's magazines um, where they take pictures of celebrities, like a celebrity couple, Mm -hmm. and then they say, okay, we're bringing in an expert based on the body language in this photo. He is really, you know, actually about to cheat on her and probably is already cheating on her. You know, it's just utterly and absolutely ridiculous, right? This one photo taken completely out of context. We're going to make all of these assumptions and we're going to say, based on the expert, our expert opinion. This is the truth, you know, because we're an expert. And I would say, you know, that's very, very similar to what happens in purity culture. You know, people look at something out of context without uh, an understanding of someone's heart (laughs) or complicated, you know, situation or whatever the case may be and guesses at their purity or their lack thereof and claims the expertise of holiness, right? Yeah. So, okay. A couple things on that. Um, you said that it's, it's hard to know whether purity culture existed before the purity movement, because one thing that did exist was basically misogyny, um, patriarchy, you know, women in the 2000 year history, since Christianity came on the scene, You know, women have only been able to vote largely for the last hundred or so and own property around that much. Um, You know, there's just 
that's obviously there. Another thing that's been there for a while is sort of the default assumption that you wait to have sex until you're married. That's at least common once sort of Catholic teaching becomes codified, maybe around three or 400. I'm not a church historian. Um, and, and that, I think, is, one, is something that gives purity culture so much of its argumentative force amongst average Christians is like, oh, yeah, you, you know, like, don't get divorced and don't sleep around and sort of this like common sense thing that then you're a parent and there's a true love weights conference coming to town. I did have a ring, by the way, at one point. And like you go, well, sure. I mean, I'll send them to that because we we believe in this family that you should wait for marriage. And that's just sort of an, un, you know, not really thought about that. It's just like, yeah, we agree. So we'll send them to this thing. And so that makes it just so powerful. It's like anything that tells Christian parents that it will protect their teenagers from the dangers of the world. That's a f- business plan right there. I mean, mm-hmm. you will you will do well. Now, whether or not you're doing harm is another question, right? Right. And I mean, there, it's it's really interesting the ways in which the assumptions of previous generations inform a, per, a perception of logic, right? You know, like, I really like what you were just saying about, yeah, we believe in this. Yeah, why not? Right? It's it's not even questioned. And as you pointed out, actually, this model was really rooted in a time in which, uh, you know, a woman's purity <laughs> was really tied to her viability as a Product, financial you asset. might think of a financial yep. asset that you would own, right? You yep. know, it's like a, it's like it's like when you buy a bottle of Snapple. Like, does it pop when you open the lid? Like, <laughs> oh, jeez, that is a really good analogy, and I don't want to go far with it. I, I just, in case people are like skeptical about this, go read Leviticus. Literally, if your virginal daughter is raped by someone else, what? is required of the rapist first he has to pay you the father because he has damaged your property and then he has to marry the girl that he raped because she's now unmarriageable so it's double compensation basically to the father who essentially owns the daughter now i do believe that god was pulling the israelites away from something like that but that's in there and that was you know i mean I mean, eventually God was pulling them away. Uh, Not fast enough for that to not be in Leviticus, though. And so it really, when we say property, we really mean legitimately property. Literally property, literally. So, you know, and there's, of course, a biblical story in which um, a woman is raped and is then um, begging her rapist, who is her brother, you know, to marry her because she is worthless, you know, now. Right. And and he doesn't, right? So it's sort of this, it's this idea of, um, the. it was so baked into the culture, the idea that, you know, if you, you break it, you buy it, right? And so that story is very complicated because how much of the issue is that, you know, a woman is broken versus the masculine perspective of, well, he's supposed to buy it after he breaks it, 
<laughs> you know, what he does with it, that's his business. It's his now. So, so anyway, so that is really the roots of these ideas about purity and these ideas about possession. And one of the reasons that these um, teachings are so much more dramatically uh, targeted toward women and girls than they are toward men and boys, which is really absolutely yep. a part of the culture. Yep. And, and so, you know, so if we don't actually pause and question the assumptions of previous generations, um, you know, we are going to assume that they are natural, healthy logic, right? It, and, and this is the moment that I want to ask people to just stop and say, you know, what are the sexual ethics that you were raised with? And what are the roots of them? And, and do we really, do we really still find it useful to, you know, perform this whole system. I mean, even even the idea of the father walking the woman down the aisle uh, and giving her away. I was and, just thinking about that. Yeah. Yeah. And no, nobody walks the man down the aisle. He's his own independent being, but she is handed from one man to the other. And, you know, I, I listen, if people choose to do that ceremony, I have no problem with it. You know, that's their choice. But we need to be aware of what we're performing and of the invisible ways that we are teaching future generations in moments like that to um, to continue a cycle that is actually um, has as it at its core um, the conditions for rape culture, the conditions for um, so many of our issues as a society. Yeah, like the the necessary but not sufficient conditions, right? Like the kind of background stuff that has to be there in order for this more insidious stuff to develop, which also reminds me of the other thing I wanted to say. You you gave a lot of descriptions of purity culture and, and what it says to especially to young girls and women. And I think it's worth noting that just like everything else we learn in our church, from our parents, from our friend groups, there are both explicit teachings and implicit teachings. And so someone might have heard that and gone, I mean, come on, that's a bit strong. But it's not like Joshua Harris, who wrote I Kiss Dating Goodbye, like says all that stuff in his introduction, black and white, or that someone's preaching all of that stuff from the pulpit. A lot of it is picked up implicitly. Like, Absolutely. And when people go to school, uh, especially when they go to school for psychology, they're usually asked to like think about the implicit um, values of their family, things that were not said, but that they nonetheless picked up on. Uh, example I use for my own life is... Uh, front doors and like the door to the family is always open. We have a revolving mm -hmm. door in our house. Guests are welcome here. There are consequences mm -hmm. of that and there are values of that. But I picked that up. No one had to mm -hmm. tell me that. No one ever said it that way. But like that was one. Or a friend of mine, we don't we don't confront each other about problems directly. That's a, an implicit rule in a family. And so a lot of this stuff is implicit, right? This mm -hmm. uh, brokenness, this, uh, you know, you're now damaged. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. A lot of that stuff is implicit. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And another another example, just to kind of pull it away from sexuality, which I think sometimes it's easier for us to look at something difficult like sexuality when we kind of go from another angle, um, you know, like take the example of work. You know, it's it's quite likely that your parents might not have had explicit conversations with you about work, right? Here are our attitudes about work. Here is our perspective about work. Um, however, you may have 
experienced your parents working (laughs) and experienced their choices in a way that was deeply communicating to you about what work is. You know, did a parent come home every day exhausted and complaining and saying, I hate this place and I'm, you know, what is, how does that shape your perception of work, right? That's awesome, yeah. Yeah. And and I think, you know, we do the same thing. We do the same thing when it comes to sexuality. And so when I think about the messages that I received about sexuality in the church, I actually think that it was easiest for me to respond to and to differentiate myself from the explicit messages. You know, for example, I have moments in which people called me out and said, oh, you're wearing the wrong thing. You need to go home and change in which multiple moments in which I actually responded and was like, this is deeply problematic. (laughs) Yeah. My mom bought me this or whatever. Yeah. Right. Like, I don't like, I don't like what's being implied here about, you know, like whose responsibility it is to, you know, control their thought life or whatever it is, if we think that's an issue. So, so, you know, when it was explicit, I actually found that I was able to see it clearly in its explicit form and to the extent that I could even push up against it. You know, and, and when it was implicit, which was the vast majority of the time, when it was just embedded into how people were looked at, how people were treated, um, who was, uh, considered good and pure and who wasn't, you know, all of these quiet messages that you receive about people and how the world works and who you need to be if you're going to belong and, and what you will be if you um, are deemed not that, you know, those are the things that actually I found get into your um, development and get into your psyche and are most difficult to deal with. Yeah. In a sense, the explicit moments are a blessing I think about, you know, thinking theologically, there's the moment when Mark Driscoll at Mars Hill Church in Seattle says, looks around the room of his congregation as a, as a neo-Calvinist and says, God hates some of you. And it's wow. like, oh, that's been implicit the whole time. Thank you for making it explicit. Now I that's can right. leave this church, <laughs> you know, or now I can go, oh, I'm not Calvinist or, you know, or whatever it is, or I'm not neo-Calvinist, what, you know, whatever you want to call it. I don't believe that. Because, oh, you finally just said it. And then I can go, oh, there's another, there are other visions where God loves everybody. So I guess my question uh, for your story, uh, I mean, first of all, the book is incredible. I'm I'm tearing through it. I mean, I'm tearing through it as fast as you can tear through a book that is so difficult to read. (laughs) Hmm. Hmm. Uh, It's it. And I had a friend warn me that it would be hard. And so. I'm going as fast as I can, given the emotional hard, cost. Hard, but I, but I want to ask you, because you haven't gotten to the end, so, so no. maybe it's still in the hardest part. I will say a lot of people, when they are, finish it, feel like they are left with hope. And so I, I, I just wanted to mention that, because I, I know a lot of people who have told me, I have your book, or um, you know, I have it on my, in my cart or whatever, but I just, I'm afraid to order it. So sure. I just want to, I just want to tell people who are listening, who might be like, ah, I can't do that. No, you that's know, true. It yeah. was intentionally written in a way that um, was not going to uh, shy away from the difficult conversations, but, um, but in order to find hope and healing and freedom. Yeah, no, for sure. And I don't, I don't mean to dissuade people. I would extremely highly recommend it. Let me be clear. Uh, and you know, I'm just, I'm starting a psychology program. Uh, as we talked about before, I've started my own little research on end times theology and people's mental health. And so it's just hitting, it's hitting close to home. 
it's something my wife and I have been talking about too, like various consequences we have experienced from, from purity culture. And, uh, but damn, it's really well written. And the research that you you did for it is great. I guess I want to ask you about that research. Can you describe the research that you did and maybe briefly what, what led you to start doing it? Sure. So as you uh, know, I was raised within purity culture myself. And um, actually, in 1991, I joined the church and really became a member of one of the first classes of adolescents to have been explicitly targeted with the purity movement messaging. Of course, I had no idea that that was happening. Um, and, you know, and as I said, it was always difficult for me, even when I was growing up in it and it had a lot to do with why I ultimately left evangelicalism in my very early twenties, 20, 21. And when I left, I thought now I will be free from sexual shame and fear and anxiety, right? Like now <laughs> I will be able to just be who I am for sweet, the first time in my life. Sweet, naive Linda. That's right. That's right. You know, and so I thought that that was the end of a journey. And what I discovered that was that it was actually the beginning of a very long journey to healing. And for many years, that was a very isolated journey. I was now in the secular world. I um, was experiencing PTSD-like experiences, uh, having nightmares around sexuality, taking pregnancy tests, though I wasn't having sex, feeling like I was... Right? I loved that detail. Oh my yeah. gosh. There's a story that I wish I could tell that relates to that, but I don't think I should for privacy reasons. Let's just <laughs> okay. say I really resonated with that pregnancy tests when there's no way you could have been pregnant because you didn't have any sex. Yes. And the amazing thing is, is that, you know, though I was completely isolated then and felt like I must be the only one who was experiencing these things, I cannot tell you how many stories, once I started doing the research, I have heard from people who were taking pregnancy tests, though they weren't having sex. It's <laughs> incredible. Um, so th- I, I had a bunch of questions I want to ask about your own story. I think we're going to skip them. I'm going to recommend that people read the book because it's a really interesting element of everything, but there's just too much I want to ask you about the movement itself and then what you uncovered in your research, because it's interesting to have your own experience. Then you start interviewing upwards of, you know, scores, dozens of people, and you start going, oh my gosh, there's something here well beyond simply what what I experienced. So I I do want to kind of focus on that. Um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so- well, I let guess, me tell, yeah, let me tell, tell me, tell readers about that process really quickly Great. and the, or tell listeners about that process really quickly. So, um, essentially out of that place of a deep isolation and despair, I think would be a fair word and tremendous fear. I started to do something very risky and that was call up my girlfriends who I grew up with in my church youth group and tell them what I was experiencing at, at which point I was I think a big part of me shocked and a a part of me relieved to hear that they were experiencing many of the same things, that they also had that deep sexual shame, fear, anxiety, and PTSD-like experiences. And many of them had thought that they were the only one. In fact, all of them thought that they were the only one. They'd never told anyone else in almost every instance. So that ultimately inspired me uh, really as as an act of of my own healing to, in my mid-20s, go back 
to my hometown. I spent a year interviewing every girl that I had grown up with in the youth group uh, over a 10-year span who was now between 20 and 29, um, who I could get a hold of at that time anyway. And then that became the beginning of 12 years of interviews in which I traveled around the country and I interviewed people who were raised in white American evangelical Christian churches as girls and a whole lot of other people, but that was my primary audience. And I pulled apart the existence of the purity movement and really looked at how this thing had impacted people's adult experiences and found that, as you said, what I thought was my experience and then I realized was our experience as a youth group was actually the experience of a generation of people across this country and indeed into the world. Uh, forgive me if I forget a couple of these details. What was the total number of people that you think you've interviewed over that time? That's a good question. I mean, the reality is, is that I've interviewed hundreds of people, you yeah. know, and I, and I really wasn't counting at a certain point. You know, some of those interviews were formal. Some of those interviews were informal. Some of them right. were recorded. Some of them were, were notes. Some of them were not notes at all, right? They were just sort of coffees to save someone's life. Yeah. Um, because I get contacted by strangers a lot and have been for the past, you know, um, now about 15 years that I've been working on this. Um, so hundreds upon hundreds, I would say I've interviewed. Interviewed. That having been said, when I got the book deal and went back and started the interview process for the book, um, that was about 80 people. And what I did is I recontacted people who I had previously interviewed, um, everybody who I was still in touch with, could still get a hold of. Um, some people I hadn't interviewed in 10 years, right? So I was able to go back to them and say, 10 years ago, you told me this, what's happened since, where is it gone? And really had this incredible sort of re- engagement with people's lives and some new people who surfaced during that period. Um, so the book, the book's interviews, I would say, are informed by hundreds of interviews, um, but it, or the themes that I pull out and things like that are informed by hundreds of interviews, but they, but there aren't hundreds of interviews actually featured in the book. Yeah. Some of that, uh, some of that 10 years later kind of stuff is really powerful um, in the text because it, that's what it feels like being a 36 year old reading your book. Cause I can look back at, you know, my younger self and, and then I can look from now uh, and sometimes getting to see both of those perspectives in the same character um, or the same interviewee um, was really powerful. I appreciated that you were able to do that. It totally changed things. Like the re-interview process was, was really fascinating. I'm so glad that I didn't write the book based on just the, the sort of first first takes that people had, you know, I really got to show journeys. Yeah. Uh, remind me if we have time at the end, I'd like to ask you about what, what changed in that, you know, in that 10 year interval for you. Um, but first mm -hmm. let's, let's kind of get the basics down here. So one of the things, um, that you talk about with purity, let's just talk about purity itself. You have a really interesting thought that I had not seen before that purity is actually a proxy a lot of times for sameness. What do you mean mm -hmm. by that? Sure. I, I, I remember the first moment that that became clear to me also feeling like, wait a minute, everything is coming together, right? But I mean, what I basically came to is I looked at the other ways in which purity is used to describe people, right? And, you know, so you look at like racial purity, you look at ethnic cleansing, 
right? These kinds of concepts that really have to do with, certainly there is no such thing as a pure race. Like, what does that even mean, right? Um, And really what we're talking about in all of these instances where we describe a person as pure or impure is ultimately, do you have any drop of something that is unfamiliar to us and that we deem to be not the same as us in some way? This is a concept that's rooted in everyone has to look the same. Everyone has to be the same. It has to look like this in order to be good, in order to be pure. But it's an arbitrary decision, right? Like what is like what is going to be considered the standard is ultimately set by who is in power and they choose themselves as the standard bearer for purity. Yeah. Or like Irish not being considered white for a while and now they are white. It's you know enough Irish people get here and you know, whatever sort of, or right, we get a new shows enemy. How arbitrary yeah, it, is. it is enemy, right? Yeah. It is, it is arbitrary. Uh, earlier this year, I interviewed uh, Richard Beck, the psychologist about, sort of um, disgust psychology and purity psychology uh, and how it activates different parts of our brain, different parts of our psychology than other, other forms of, for instance, talking about sin. So it's mm, sometimes sin is missing the mark. Um, you know, sometimes sin is, well, I fell down, but I'll get back up. And in purity culture, that's usually how it is for the guys. So you're a stallion, you're going to sow your oats. If you fall down, you get back up. For whatever reasons, maybe it's the misogyny and patriarchy. We don't do that for the women. It's it's uh, once that Snapple lid has been popped, it's no longer fresh. And in so in some sense, it's kind of an unfortunate psychological migration from language about purity of heart, which is very biblical, uh, and which is you know like it, it, it purity of heart is is the kind of thing that God's supernatural forgiveness can restore. That's basically what you believe if you are a Christian, if you've ever converted to Christianity or had any sort of turnaround, any sort of repentance, inherent in the idea of repentance is God can heal this. God can restore purity of heart. But then that idea migrates on to the body or the person or the ethnicity or the smells of their food that they cook or whatever. And it's it's an unfortunate migration because I don't know, maybe we, we don't have the same faith that God can do that. Or maybe it's just, there's no helping it. It's part of psychology that once you apply disgust to a person or a group of people, it's, it's entrenched. I don't know if you have any sort of thoughts about that. I think those are really fascinating topics. And I would actually be really interested to hear about the research on, on disgust and how disgust is different. Um, because, because you're absolutely right. Um, this, the, the purity language is not a language of sin. The purity movement was not rooted in language around sin. Um, it is rooted on language around shame. So to, uh, be clear when I'm saying shame, I'm talking about the research definition of shame. I'm talking about this feeling or this shaming. So this, um, communicated message that you are something bad or that people will think that you are something bad as opposed to guilt, which is you did something bad. That's exactly right. So um, within the purity message is embedded all of these ideas about who you are. Now, if we talked about it as sin, that would be about what you do. 
right? Because the majority of sin is described as what you do. You did this thing, right? And, and I think that's why you are able to be forgiven for it because it's about what you do. And, and guilt, interestingly, being around what you do is actually categorized as a moral emotion because it makes people better, right? Because you look at something you did and you assess it and you say, Ooh, I actually hurt somebody. Ooh, I actually, you know, like that's not the kind of um, way I want to live in the world, whatever it is, you become better because of guilt. Yeah. Guilt is like you put your hand over the stove and it's hot and it hurts and that's good. Then you learn not to put your hand on the stove. Shame is like, I'm such a piece of shit. I always put my hand over the stove. Right, 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 right. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Exactly. Or I just did it, you know, in this first moment and it's because I'm stupid. I'm bad. I, I always was the kind of person who would, of course, stupid me do such a thing. Right. Yeah. So, so, so somebody can have a guilt reaction to something or have a shame reaction to something. Um, and some people, yeah, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say some people are more predisposed to have one reaction or the other. However, um, one of the ways to get somebody to have a shame reaction instead of a guilt reaction is to repeatedly shame them and to, to teach them to experience shame. And the purity movement taught us to experience shame around sexuality, around our bodies, all of this stuff. It literally trained us to think about sexuality via a shame-based frame. And ultimately, you know, when you are an adolescent, which is the primary target age, although it goes straight through young adulthood, um, your brain is incredibly plastic when it comes to sexual development. So for you to be taught in this moment to to be shameful to and again I don't mean bashful when I say that I mean to experience a sense of um, defined <laughs> as good or bad right um, in that age it's really it's really can be very challenging for people to repave those neural pathways over the course of the rest of their lives. So I just paid my first tuition bill for grad school, and I must say, I am more grateful than ever for the patrons of this show. Speaking of which, do you guys remember Bonnie Christian? She's been on the show twice, once talking about atonement theories and another time talking through inerrancy, infallibility, and inspiration. Her excellent book, A Flexible Faith, goes through all kinds of topics like that, giving the basic positions held across the Christian spectrum. And recently she was gracious enough to do another one of these episodes specifically for patrons of the show. We talked through these two linked questions. What does God know and does God determine who will be saved? To hear the entire conversation, you'll need to become a patron if you aren't one already. Starts at five bucks a month and it also includes membership in the patron only Facebook group and exclusive episodes like this twice every month. Patreon.com slash Dan Koch or you have permission pod.com. Click become a patron. Here are some clips from my chat with Bonnie to wet your whistle. Um, and so the idea there is that, that God is in control of everything that happens. Um, and to say that means that he, he sovereignly determines it. Um, all, all of history is due to God's choice. Um, that choice is unchangeable. There is nothing you can do to, to buck against it. There's nothing you can do to thwart his will. Um, and so even things that we look at and say, you know, that's evil. I don't see how that could possibly be part of God's plan. I don't see how that could bring God's glo- God glory in some way. 
God has ordained that for his good purpose. And we may never understand it in this lifetime. Um, you know, eventually you will understand. Um, but the, the mystery of it to us in this moment does not change the fact that even these apparently horrific evils are ordained by God and do bring him glory. Uh, you know, I have a, a close friend who grew up in a, a Calvinist context, and for him, um, he looked at sort of his life and his thoughts and behaviors, and he was like, well, I'm definitely damned. There's a lot of, an, it, it's easier to handle, I think, questions of salvation and of evil, because the Arminian can say, no, God did not ordain that to happen. God did not create a world where that had to happen. You legitimately made that choice. You chose the, the, to do the evil thing, you chose to reject salvation. Um, and so uh, those questions, I think, to some extent become simpler. But this, I want to talk a little bit about this in out of time thing. I heard that a lot growing up. It, it seems like it's a go-to response for almost, for like most Christians to say, well, God's outside of time, so that solves that. But mm-hmm. I don't know that like I really understand what that means and how then God ever does anything in time. Open theism is not communicating necessarily something different about the nature of God or God's power or God's knowledge, but about the nature of um, the future and and how time functions. And so the idea is not that, again, just as with Arminianism, it's not that God is stupider or weaker than in these other theories, but that um, significant portions of the future legitimately do not yet exist to be known. And so God cannot know what those parts of the future are yet because they, they just don't exist. He can't know a non-entity. The future, uh, yeah, the future does not exist and therefore the future can't be known yet. Right. So if that sounds interesting, or if you just want to help me get through grad school, you can go to patreon.com slash dancoke or youhavepermissionpod.com and click become a patron. Back to the episode. I feel like there's a possibility of someone listening and and being a little skeptical that some of these messages are quite so, uh, you know, insidious. But can you give you've you've read tons of literature on this stuff. You've read all the big books. You've looked at curricula. Um, what are some of these explicit teachings such that, you know, all the obviously a lot of it's implicit, but some of the stuff you can nail it down. It's in black and white. What are some of those examples, just so that we know you're not making this shit up? (laughs) So object lessons are the clearest and most obvious example. And object lessons, the majority of them are targeted toward women and girls. And on occasion, there are some that go toward um, everybody. Yeah. Uh, But the women and girls ones in particular tend to be focused on used things, for example, um, a, a metaphor is given that a woman is a tissue and she's clean and she's, you know, can be used by anyone. Um, and now someone blows their nose in it. And who wants to blow their nose in that tissue now? It's used, it's disgusting, it's dirty. And there's that um, disgust psychology in full force. That's why I think that's so interesting, right? Yeah. Um, and a lot of the metaphors have to do with that. A, um, a new bike and a used broken down bike. Um, yep. a, a hamburger that's never been bitten into and one that's got a bunch of slobbery bites taken out of it. The An Oreo cookie that everyone in the room has to drop on the floor and spit on and the teacher holds it up and says, okay, now who wants this cookie that all of you said you wanted at the beginning of class, right? And yeah. 
these and these object lessons, I think, communicate a lot to us. It, like I said, um, and actually, maybe even you said it. It's useful when things are made explicit because now we can see them. Right? The object lessons to me communicate a bunch of things. One, the way in which we are taught to see our sexuality as something for someone else. Like, who's going to want that now? Right? Right. <laughs> and particularly women and girls' sexuality, because a lot of these examples that I just gave are, are targeted on women and girl, to women and girls. And secondarily, it's something that, like, loses value. And even the food metaphors I find particularly disturbing, and there are so many food metaphors, because it's not just about losing value. You literally disappear. You are eaten, devoured, and are hmm. now nothing. You have nothing. Yeah, I loved that chapter where you get into these object lessons. Psychologically, it's just incredibly rich stuff to think about. If people are interested in this whole discussed food thing, definitely go back and listen if you haven't. Episode 20, it's called Why Love the Sinner and Hate the Sin is Psychologically Impossible. But really, it's a lot about discussed psychology and these food metaphors and all of that. So give, so us, I grew give up, us 30 seconds on the discussed psychology. Okay. Well, so I'll, I'll just say this is, this is the sort of seems the most relevant. One thing that Richard Beck shows, you mean give you 30 seconds. <laughs> most of the <laughs> I've, listeners, I've, <laughs> they've listened. Okay, they've all heard. They've well, that's heard. a very popular episode, but basically because people thought it was going to be about homosexuality because of the way I worded it, which is, was on purpose and is clever marketing. Basically. So the Bible uses all kinds of different metaphors about sin. Uh, and Beck sort of categorizes them into, into categories of the types of metaphor they are. So some of them are missing the mark, right? Sin, the word sin in whatever it is, Greek or Hebrew or something is to miss the mark. That's the original etymology of the word. Uh, and that's what we, so I've stumbled, uh, you know, lost my way or whatever, you know, the prodigal son, whatever. Um, but then there are other metaphors. Uh, I, I can't remember all of them. He has like four or five categories. One of them is these disgust, these food categories. So stained. Uh, or discussing, yeah, he will spit you out of his mouth, you know, stuff like that. So they activate a different part of our psychology. There are all these negative ways of framing sin, because sin is negative, but they activate different systems. And basically, these different systems have evolved for different reasons, and the disgust system has evolved to keep us physically safe from, you know, bacteria, germs, uh, putrefied food, you know, gore and putrefied flesh, which could cause disease. And so we have these kind of, it's basically really hard. You can't think your way out of a gag reflex is one way of mm -hmm, saying it. Mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. can think your way out of, oh, I used to think like, for instance, let, let's use homosexuality. That's weird to me when they wear pink, when guys wear pink and, and have their wrists more flailing and speak with a lisp. That's weird. Well, I can stop thinking that's weird, but even if I'm gay affirming, it might still disgust me to think about male to male anal sex. And probably there's not a lot I can do about the visceral disgust of that thought. What I have to do is just go, well, I have that thought. It does, it does seem gross to me, but also being a butcher seems gross, but I don't think it's wrong for someone to be a butcher. And I just have to be okay with that. The, the disgust is going to stick around in a way I might get very used to the high inflection of the voice and have gay friends and and enjoy conversing with them and notice that they are able to connect with women in a way that I'm not able to, you know, whatever. Like I might find things that might be completely gone five years from now. 
but like a penis in a butt might never go away. It disgust has a way of sticking around deeper in our psyche than other some of the other psychological systems that we also use to talk about sin. How did I do? That was longer than 30 seconds. Yeah, that was interesting. Yeah, that was interesting. So basically, if you can teach people to experience disgust, um, it's going to be more difficult for them to recode that thing in their minds. Yeah. And related to sort of historic patriarchal systems, if, if people begin to see defiled women as disgusting, it will. So one of the questions I have about the purity movement and about like the most interesting thing to me is the gender disparity. I don't, for some reason, I just find it the most fascinating. And I'm wondering if this might be part of the explanation that uh, for, for whatever reasons, and I would guess patriarchy is one of the big ones, the coding of men and women within the purity culture is different. Men are coded, men's purity errors are coded as missteps and women's are coded as impurifications. And I, that's just fascinating. Like, so that's why I was able to recover more easily than my wife from this kind of stuff. Because it, because I was sort of told, look, you know, you're going to do this stuff, but you shouldn't try and think about your wife on the wedding night. You know, like basically I was given all of this buffering because everybody knows a boy is going to be a boy and the girls were not given that kind of buffering. Right. That's absolutely true. And and yes, you're I think you hit it on the head. I think it just comes down to simple patriarchy um, and sexual control and gender based control. Okay, but Um, really quick, mm -hmm. I do. So when when we when we go from patriarchy straight into control, for some reason, control to me always sounds more like we're talking about individuals and patriarchy is systemic. And I know that systems lead to individual uh, attitudes, but I think it's helpful, especially for guys listening mm-hmm. to, to remember that like systems produce individual or that control might be totally not intended. You know, it's not like, like if I'm a dad and I have a 14 year old girl who's daughter, who's starting to get breasts and got her period and, you know, boys are starting to look at her. Like I'm not primarily interested in controlling her. I'm primarily interested in protecting her. But what tools do I have at my disposal? Well, if it's 1999, I've got purity culture. That's probably Mm -hmm, my mm -hmm, most mm -hmm. available tool. And I don't have time because I'm at work to like, you know, I I, and I don't have a degree in psychology, whatever. So I just got this thing. So I just I want to be clear that like a lot of this is happening without people's intentions involved. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm really glad that you pulled that out. Uh, That is very, very, very true. And even if you're in a system that is rooted in women and girls being controlled, <laughs> that doesn't mean that you are motivated by that control, right? You can be motivated by love, right? Um, but yes, you're in a system that is going to ultimately control, right? And is designed for control. So so yes, I, I, and I love what you said about you know, I'm busy, I don't have a degree in psychology, so I'm using what I have around me. And at the beginning of the purity movement and and really throughout uh, its 
the totality of the purity movement, but particularly the beginning before we actually saw people had become adults within it. Um, you know, a lot of people were just guessing. They were like, I hope this works. Seems like it will, you know, totally. back to that inherited logic. Right. Yep. Um, and, and now though, we actually have information. Now we can say, okay, no, it doesn't work. You know, when we look at how these teachings actually impact people, um, you know, certainly my research, you know, shows that it's, uh, it's not every single person is going to internalize that shame and have these issues, but the number of people who are and have is dramatic. And also we have more research that's happening right now that's specifically looking at um, Latter-day Saints communities, um, Baptist communities, and um, I think maybe it's Catholic. I can't quite remember. But anyway, what they're looking at is how purity messaging, or I think they even describe it differently, like conservative sexual ethics that have to do with, you know, because not not everyone uses that language. Um, But, you know, how does this actually impact people? And they are, uh, first of all, the research is reiterating the already existing finding that abstinence only before marriage messaging does not meaningfully impact the number of partners someone has, nor does it meaningfully impact the first age of sex. But what it does, according to their research, which aligns very closely with my research, is it creates these incredible states of shame among people. So you have people who are having sex because actually there isn't a fundamental difference in the actions. Um, but they're experiencing all of this tremendous shame around it, which is leading to the feeling that they're not respected and that they're not respectful, that they are they're a decrease in, in pleasure and enjoyment, um, you know, all, all of these things. So really what's actually being impacted by this messaging is our psychological life in a way that now we know. Right. And it's one thing, I think, to to not have the access to this information. And but I but we're not there anymore. Right. We have access to this information. And and I think now we can start to say, uh, you know, how do we do things differently? So much in there. We're going to save what comes after purity culture for later. I'm listening to you. And I am like, the research is valuable to me. I'm the kind of person who decided to go to grad school for psychology. I am swayed by research. I find it uh, to be an excellent source of information. A lot of people can't get there because they've got this sort of biblical issue. And this is one of the areas that is so interesting is when you ask people to explain from the Bible why the tenets of purity culture are biblical, they actually have a hard time and you you realize how many assumptions it's resting on. I had a, a listener, a patron of the show, who heard your interview on Bible for Normal People, which I also heard and enjoyed and I actually linked to it uh, at the end of our previous Purity Culture episode that we did on this show with Tina Sellers. And I, but one thing, but that show's short. And one thing you guys didn't get into as much as this listener would have liked, and I also would have liked, is a bit more of the biblical stuff. So you're not a biblical scholar. I know that. But you uh, have spent a lot of time in this world. What are what are some takeaways from actually getting people to try and defend it biblically? What happens? Well, I mean, generally speaking, people don't defend it biblically. Um, they defend it culturally. And they have so dramatically fused the idea of our culture <laughs> with the idea of what this Christianity means, what this Bible says, that they actually, you know, don't, I think much like you said, they don't realize that those things are actually 
distinct from one another. Um, the the verses that are there tend to be you know taken out of context. Uh, you know this is a this is a, a book that needs to be read in context, and and oftentimes we're not. So there's some folks who would talk about cultural theology, right? There are different forms of theology, and one form of theology um, is this is this cultural theology, which is to say, how do we take cultural norms and make them religion, right? It's a theology that is actually deifying cultural ideas. I And not necessarily on purpose, but I would say this is always happening. This happens in every sect of every religion over all time. The question is, how much is it happening? But it's always happening. Yeah, I think it's a form of theology that is really, really dominant, you know, whereas I think there are other forms of theology that are rooted in, I want to say, like universal truths, right, Um, that are that are sort of non-cultural. And it's it can be very difficult to pull those things apart sometimes. Right? It's impossible to know which they are. But, you know, there's there's a continuum. There's sort of like, I mean, it's like people looking for biblical justification for the wall with Mexico or something like they'll find something but putting up big walls between nations is not a theme of the bible now it was right you know you could still argue as a policy you might think it's a good idea but you're not going to find it in the the main message of the biblical text yeah that's right that would be on the one one end of the continuum that's the far kind of obvious end but then it, it gets slippery in the middle yeah, exactly. So, I, I mean, the reality is, is that I don't think we are talking about, you know, one of the reasons that I don't talk about the Bible as much in my work is because I feel like I have a different sacred text, which is the sacred text of people's stories and the sacred text of people's lives that I consider holy. Um, you know, there is something truly holy about hearing about people's deeply, authentically told truth that. I always feel that God is in the room with us when we're having those conversations. I want to stay and, away from their the word their truth because I was a philosophy major, but I would say <laughs> their lived experience and their oh, narrative. Sure. Yeah. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. Their their lived experience. Um but the reason I the reason I used that word um, though I think you have a good caveat there, is because so often what we're doing is we're not talking about um we're not talking about the authentic stories. We're talking about something else because it's actually very difficult to, to be vulnerable and to tell your authentic story. Right. And and so the thing that the thing that makes those interviews feel holy to me is that we are, you know, talking at a deeper level and talking about things that um, that are not not usually talked about elsewhere. And and it is something that feels. Um, that, you know, there's a reason that I use that word truth, right? But I hear your caveat, and I think it's an important one. Um, anyway, so when I talk to people who agree with purity culture, and I ask them to tell me about their stories, I have, and this was a huge problem for me on the research for this book, I really wanted to include the stories of people who had experienced positive things in purity culture. I wanted to, I wanted to represent that as a, um, a part of the equation. However, in every instance, people would not actually tell me about their lives they would they would not have those authentic conversations with me. They would instead repeat talking points like, 
I am excited. I was, I loved being my a princess for my husband the day I got married. They're literally, or, or quote Bible verses, but they're literally like repeating phrases, talking points. Sometimes they're Bible verses and sometimes they're culturally like, you know, crafted evangelical terms. But, but it was so hard because I couldn't actually get uh, them to tell me real stories of their lives. And, and so I think that that's really important for us to look at, you know, when we try to pull apart the difference between what is a cultural theology, right? And what is, um, you know, a theology that's rooted in something deeper, you know, if we can't actually be honest with ourselves and tell our stories, you know, there's probably something there that, that is it is, is at clash. Yeah. It's, you know, the the Paul verses about sexual immorality would get thrown around a lot, I remember. But of course, you still need an argument for which things count as sexual immorality, which Paul does not give you. Um, masturbation is is pretty incredible. There's nothing in the Bible. There's there's uh, the one dude who spills his seed, um, but that's because he doesn't want to get his wife pregnant or whoever he's with. It's not about that. It's about not following God's plan for him to have a child. And then people will, of course, do Jesus if your right hand causes you to sin, which is the most uh, unfortunate verse for junior high and high school boys to hear. But, of course, no one takes that literally. And, of course, he's not talking about masturbation just because most boys use their right hands to masturbate. Uh, so then you're just left with, the, left with these sexual immorality ones. And and the scholarship there is interesting and complicated. And, you know, there's questions of cultural theology. And we, we talk about that a lot on this show about, well, what sort of systems of patriarchy was Paul unknowingly involved in? Yeah, and, and, and you yeah. know, multiple wives and concubines. Right. And, you know, somehow these things are not are not things that we ever discuss. When well, they we wouldn't apply to Jesus. Bible... I think most people would say, well, by the time you get to Jesus and Paul, all that stuff's done because Paul says an elder should be a man married to one woman. So we're past polygamy. And Jesus says you should not get divorced. And, and, and you know... The, the hard one is Jesus – so the big ethical move I think that Jesus makes in the Sermon on the Mount is it's not about outward behavior. It is about the intentions of the heart. And so he talks about divorce. He talks about sexual immorality, and he moves it from the domain of action. You could get a divorce. Uh, Moses permitted you divorce. I say you can't get divorced. I read that as uh, uh, he's dismantling patriarchy, at least one of the things he's doing. But he also talks about if you have lusted after – a married woman, you've committed adultery with her. So he's moving it from the outward to the inward. And, yeah, and just to just yeah. to clarify for people who are um, listening, you know, the reason that you would see that as dismantling patriarchy is because of what we were talking about before. This idea that when you divorce a woman, you leave her yep. worthless and penniless. Um, and so divorce would be an actually a within that context and within that culture would be destroying someone's right. life. Exactly. Right. Like and probably leading to her physical death. Um, right. So so, you know, so. So things like, yeah, anyway, th- that, that's what I mean when I say we really need to look at context, right? Um, because, because, you know, the, the Jesus that I see when I read the page is a Jesus of justice. And, um, and that, I would say, is the lens through which um, his messages should be read. Yeah, I mean, I think that justice is one of the main lenses we should use. I'm also using a sort of a um, a virtue ethics lens here, right? So it's mm, yeah. it's less about the the morality inherent in the outward action, and it's more about the intention in becoming a certain kind of a person, 
which I think is what discipleship and imitation of Christ is ultimately about. But that's a tough one, right? If you're going through puberty, you're in this context of purity culture, and you read, if you've lusted after a woman, you've committed adultery, and you're like, oh, shit, my whole life is a- adultery. And it, it, I don't know. I mean, I, I, that's a hard one. I'm not sure what to do. Like, I would say this. That verse and that move, the ethical move of Jesus from outward behavior to inwardness has to be part of whatever comes after purity culture for Christians, right? The reason that we can't go, I think, to full on, it's all about autonomy, it's it's enthusiastic consent and nothing more, uh, bodies are more are like amoral, basically, as long as you're not exploiting each other. I think the reason we can't do that is because of that turn in morality yeah. in, in morality that jesus makes no no no. your intentions matter uh she might say yes but if you just want to fuck her because you're feeling lonely that's wrong that's right Th- so that's not a sufficient ethic and also going into psychology and just thinking through how complex this stuff is for people and what are we you know what are we are we self-medicating are we running from trauma are we like that's not flourishing Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. No, no, no. I yeah. I agree with you. I just want to I just want to say I I think you're really on to something there. Like when I read about the heart matters and motivation matters, I would say so does, you know, part of that is context matters. And so, you know, the reality is, is and I think this is actually a really really important part, you know, we have taken this idea of the heart mattering and applied it onto our legalistic um, interpretation, right? So it's like, even though what I think that Jesus was giving was a more a more nuanced way to approach this, which we desperately need, um, what it, the way in which it has been interpreted is to... Um, is to use our legalistic, you know, model and to make it even more sharp, even more painful, um, even more strict. So, but, but I agree. What I see there is a recognition of the complexity of these things, right? A recognition that you can't sort of make a, a, a rule and just say, you know, we're done, you know, because the reality is, you know, your example is perfect. And there are a million other examples, you know, that, that we could go through where in one circumstance, something might be just fine. And in another circumstance, something is going to be completely different. And some of that has to do with how that person is approaching it. And some of it has to do with the other contextual things that are going on in those people's lives and, and the other people who are impacted. Oh gosh. You've just touched on what I think is one of the core issues at the center of the entire conversation of deconstruction and, leaving, you know, maturation and and separating from your childhood faith is like, some of us want rules and there will always be some proportion of people who need rules and rules will never work. And I think that's one of the things that Jesus is actually doing by moving it from behavior to the heart is -hmm. saying, it's not about rules, but you're always going to want rules. You're always going to want to sign. But then some of that is also personality type, you know, more innately conservative people want authority and they want structure and they recognize in a way that us liberals don't always recognize society requires some about some amount of that to function uh and then we liberals want to oh well we'll find these few minimum rules like consent and autonomy or whatever it's so complicated and and almost everyone who listens to this show and certainly my story certainly your story has in one sense been a exodus 
out of rigidity and list-based, rule-based, box-checking faith into the scarier, more nebulous, more discernment-focused life in the actual world that we live in. In a sense, that's the move out of purity culture into something else, isn't it? Yeah, I would agree. And and I'm also with you that I I don't think rulelessness is the answer either. Um, you know, I actually lead workshops on sexual ethics on occasion, and one oh. of the things mm, and one of the things that I ask the room is I say, "Okay, what other ethic can you think of, you know, besides purity culture, right? Besides this idea of one man and one woman um, in marriage forever is good, everything else is bad. And the first thing I'll say is that it takes people a really long time to come up with any other ethic that is a moral framework with which to make decisions. And ultimately, what we usually come to is, um, you know, the two dominant alternative ethics. One is anything goes, which I would say is not an ethic. It is the absence of an ethic. And the other is um, what you just said, enthusiastic. Yes, but it would specifically be between two consenting adults. Now, that rule leaves a lot of ambiguity. You know, your, your example would fit within that rule, and there would be some within that uh, example, you know, that would be healthy and others that, that would not be healthy, I would argue, right? So how, so what we still lack is a framework, an ethical framework, right? And so I do believe in there being certain rules, like I like that rule. I like consent. I like yeah, adults. It's, I it's like minimally, <laughs> ne- it's necessary. Yeah. It has to be adults yeah. and it has yeah. to be uh, real consent, not coerced in any kind of a way. Right. For sure. Like that's like, that's the baseline. Yep. And a lot of people don't recognize that, and that's rape culture, and, and that has to be fought against. But I think most of us in this space, okay, okay, yeah, that, and then what else, you know? So what I think we're lacking is ethics, right? Right. So, so, and I would say rules and ethics are different from one another. So, so I, like, I like those as rules, right? That's, that's like legal. <laughs> like there is literally laws around that stuff and for a reason, right? Um, but we still need ethics because what ethics allow us to do is to actually take these complex decisions and to um, navigate them in ways that are uh, contextual and that take into account this larger frame, including the heart. So I like ethical models that are um, rooted in uh, what I call sort of an, uh, so sometimes I pull apart different different frameworks and I categorize some as a uh, exoskeleton, right? So it's like, it's like an animal is held by this shape, right? So a lot of rule systems are, if you're within this, you're good. If you're outside of it, you're bad. And there are some people who say, okay, we're at a point now where we actually need to shift the exoskeleton a little bit. You know, like maybe it's like a lobster. It's going to shed that one. It's going to grow a little. And then another new hard shell is going to come out over top of it. But I think that is always going to lead us back to this same problem of lacking ethics, because ultimately that that model doesn't work for every every situation. So what I like are these endoskeleton models, right? It's like values and yep. practices that um, we can use, but that 
I can bend left in this situation and I can bend right in this situation when taking into account all of those things. So there's a model that I talk about in the book that I really like uh, called the Our Whole Lives model, OWL, which is a curriculum uh, that it talks about sexuality across the lifespan. And they actually suggest specific uh, values. They say, you know, these are the values that we suggest that you should consider. It's a secular model. It has two uh, faith-based overlays that you can choose to use. Uh, one is made by the Unitarian Universalist Association, one by the United Church of Christ. So you can kind of add those overlays if you want. And then, uh, you know, they actually, in their model, the thing that I like best is that they teach these values, and then they actually teach people to have healthy discussions about how to make decisions using those values. And that's really hard. So they um, start every class where, or they suggest that people start every class where they say to students, okay, here's our anonymous question back box, put in your questions. At the beginning of class, they'll read the questions out. And usually what the person is asking about is, is they're asking for a rule. They're asking for a right or wrong. I was just going to say that. Yep. Yeah. They're like, is this bad? Yep. <laughs> or we whatever just, we it is. Want them so, we want rules so bad, especially I think when forces are so powerful like sex drive. That's right. It's and like when we there's have a so stallion much in my backyard. And I got, what's the fence that will keep this stallion from busting into the house or running away, you know, or whatever. Right, right. And when we have shame as a culture that doesn't allow us to do anything else, right? So we can't have any other kind of conversation. So anyway, so then the person, the facilitator will say, great, here's this question. Let's look at our values. Let's talk through this question via the value of um, equality, Okay, let's have this discussion. We're all discussing it now. Okay, now let's talk it through via this value. Let's da 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 right? And what they find is that over the course of multiple sessions, people go from walking in saying, what's the answer? To people, the questions get more complicated. And moreover, people's ability as a room becomes, they literally grow the muscle <laughs> of actually having healthy, nuanced conversations about sexuality. And you'll actually see people no longer say to the facilitator, yes, what is the answer? But they'll just jump in and they'll say, well, you know, when I think about this through this lens, I think about this. So anyway, so, so I think having values is a really important way to start. Um, and there are other models out there that actually, you know, don't suggest values that have people identify their own values. Um, now, to be clear, a value and a rule are different. And right. oftentimes people cannot tell the difference. <laughs> yeah, know. no. So a value might be uh, don't, you know, respect someone's autonomy or never cause any harm or always treat people fairly. These are values. Right. So I would say that some people would say, well, I have a value of not having sex before marriage. But that's not and that's not really a value. So what you might in that, that's not a value, that's that's a rule. So what you might want to do, if that is something that you say, maybe you value it, but it's not a value. So then you can say, okay, why do I have that value? Like, what right. are the value, or why do I have that rule? Like, why what are do the I value values? That? Yeah. yeah, what yeah. are the values that are beneath that for me, right? Is it about, is it about, you know, for somebody, it might be 
I value my education and my independence and I, you know, don't want to get mixed up in anything even before I've established my career, you know, yeah. so like, so anyways, it can look totally different for different people. So anyway, one thing is the values. And then another is, I would say the ability to, to have reflection around these things, which is that muscle that needs to be developed. And the third thing is, is a community with which you can um, have those discussions when it's too difficult to do it on your own. Okay fascinating obviously to me seems like the right path because if we just try and replace the old rules with new rules we'll just get new pharisees uh and we will have people who are incentivized in all kinds of ways that are not helpful and but there's still an issue with values and and now i'll turn away from uh, dr beck to jonathan height and his moral foundations theory and he has shown that liberals have basically two moral values two moral taste buds that are extremely powerful. It's care and fairness, care and harm versus and fairness versus injustice. But conservatives have three more or four more, depending if you count liberty, um, which is sort of they're considering. They have authority. They have purity, which is very relevant here. And then they have uh, loyalty. And so if you get a bunch of conservative people, naturally speaking, and a bunch of naturally liberal people in the same room, uh, or in two different rooms, let's say, to have this discussion, one group is going to say, well, I feel like the human body is a temple. It's a, it's a temple to the Lord. There's something pure and holy about it. It should not be defiled. And then the liberal person is going to go, that's bullshit. It's just a body. It's cells and blood and, and you know, you're creating meaning yourself. And, and the purity thing is dogma you've been given that's com- that has no basis in reality. So what would be interesting is if you want any kind of unified, not humanity, but just Christian. So some sort of, okay, we're all Christians here. We're moving beyond purity culture. We're not going to go with anything goes or simply consent. Even then you're going to have value differences. So uh, loyalty to group norms, I'm going to find that to be pointless. And my conservative, you know, in-law is going to find that to be super valuable. So, it's, <laughs> I mean, that also seems right because this stuff is really complicated. Um, but when a lot of times when people ask, well, what comes next? I think they're looking for what's the new rule or at least, but what I'm saying is let's say they are convinced there's no rule and they want it to be values. There isn't even going to be an agreed upon set of values because people just have different moral values. We all share, we all have them all, but we all share fair fairness and we all share uh, care and harm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. then we differ. So I think that's why some of the models are about identifying your own values for exactly that reason, because people are going to have different values. Whereas when you sit with a group of people, one thing that I think is really important that we miss the mark on in a lot in churches is we try to pretend that our values are the values that every single person should have, which, you know, in some cases is, you know, like, like group loyalty, I think is a good example where, you know, one person might value it and another person might not. So the way in which we are together in these things, I think has to do with a shared value around, we will not be in the words of Cornell West, like minded in every circumstance, but we can be like hearted in our attempt to really be with the other person and to support them and their their journey, right? So if I were in a like-hearted 
but not like-minded community. Um, and somebody in that group talked about the importance of, you know, uh, loyalty to, to group norms. I can honor that that is their value and I can walk with them as they navigate a question that might in one way challenge that value, but be in perfect alignment with another and help them to struggle with that tension, right? So, But Linda, what is sinful? <laughs> right? We, that's where my brain goes. And not that I'm actually asking that, but it's like, but if I'm, if uh, my husband left me and now I'm in my 50s and I'm dating someone else and it doesn't really sound reasonable for me to be celibate, but he wants to be celibate, is he right that it's a sin? Am I right that it's not a sin? The way we're talking now, it almost feels like it's impossible to bring an overarching sin framework into it unless there's, you know, obvious selfishness or something like that going on. Because if you want to say it's sinful because you're exploitative, okay, cool, we can get that. That's everyone agrees that's sinful. But if you're going to say it's sinful because it's it's violating a purity function, not purity culture, it's it's hard that that's the same word. I just mean um, you're defiling something holy, uh, which a lot of people are going to have that moral intuition. They're going to have it naturally. Well, we're at an impasse. What is the purity value? I'm, to be honest with you, I'm not sure that I understand even, like, I actually okay. am not. Yeah, I'll give you the. Define that for me, because okay. I'm, I'm not convinced it actually is a value even. Uh, no, it definitely is. Let me, let me prove it. Using one yeah, of um, Jonathan Haidt's, what, what do you call them? Moral dumbfounding questions. So Great. he'll ask this question to, like, you know, New Englanders, and then he'll ask it to, like, rural folks in Paraguay. And get very different answers. Here, here's, here's my favorite one. A man buys a roasted chicken from the store and takes it home. Before eating the chicken for dinner, he has sex with the carcass of the roasted chicken. Okay? Uh, and let's say he comes in the chicken body and he likes the taste of that. Okay? So that's part of his basting. Now, has he done something immoral? Most New Englanders will say it's gross, but no, it's not immoral. Nobody was harmed. The chicken was already dead. You know, maybe it was immoral to kill the chicken in the first place, but uh, it's nothing wrong. Paraguayans will say absolutely something is wrong. He defiled the chicken, and more importantly, he defiled himself because human beings are not supposed to have sex with chicken carcasses. That is a degrading of the value that God has given them as as a little lower than the angels, okay? That's a value, and it's not transferring between mm. these cultures. And so it's not easy to say, for the, for the woman I mentioned, the 50-year-old in the relationship, it is God's intention for her and her to-be second husband to sort of like, like, is there something sacred about sex for them and their sex organs and how they were made? Is there something, or here's a Catholic move, is there something specifically for reproduction about sex organs that is also sacred and that has a function? Or, you know, is it not that way? Uh, are the New Englanders more right about this issue? There's no, you can't really adjudicate that. Maybe you can with the text. You can do it theologically and people can make arguments. But you see what I'm saying? That we're not going to, there's not going to be some grand synthesis beyond purity culture that conservative and liberal Christians are going to agree with because conservative and liberal Christians don't have the same moral values. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, it's. I, I mean, 
All right. You, you gave me something, something good to think about, about purity actually being a value within that context. Yeah, it's interesting. I will say I, I definitely lean toward the idea of identifying your own values. I think that that just is a, all of this, totally. every level of this takes more work. So purity <laughs> culture is easy, easy, yeah. easy, easy, yep. easy. It's so easy to be like, here are the rules, stick with them. You're cool. Don't. You're terrible. Super simple. It's efficient. Yeah. And now, that's why it will you, always be more popular than whatever comes next. That's right. Now, if you bring in, here are our values, and we are imposing that, and the rest of it, you know, we're going to, you know, teach. Now, the OWL curriculum, it takes like nine months or something to go through an OWL. You know, I mean, it's remarkably long process. Um, and they do that on purpose because they feel like to do any less than that is, um, you know, you're not really going to get it. So... So, you know. I've, yeah, my my wheels are spinning, though. I wonder if there's a way to do this where you could identify these values and you could word them in a way that leaves some room on the left and right, let's say. So mm-hmm. you could say something some interpretation. like human bodies are a temple. They were lovingly. I don't want to say design. I have a hard time with design because of evolution, but maybe find a better word than design by our creator. They are not mere playthings. That could be one of your values that I think most people would agree, not, but maybe not everybody. Maybe some people go, no, no they're totally playthings. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. You're, yeah. I mean, listen, I, what, but here's the trick. Like, the, you know, what you're doing right now is what we're inviting people in to do when we're talking about these things. And that's why it's so hard. Yeah. You know, so like I said, it's so a lot of work if we're going to propose these values. It's even more work if we're going to say, what are your values? I mean, first of all, to even identify your values, that is not something that most people have ever done, right? right? And, and so even the work of saying, what are my values, period, which P.S., as far as I'm concerned, your values around making sexual decisions should be the same as your values around making decisions. Right. Like, Sexual decisions are just a decision, right? So like, but you know, so the reality but that's is- your, But that is your liberal bias. I don't mean liberal politically. I don't mean I liberal you. theologically. Just personality. Uh, someone who has a strong sense of the body as a temple would say, no, they're, it's not the same as other decisions about money or decisions about what to do for this adopted pet center. It's like the human body has a special extra thing. Right. Yeah. You know? No, I hear you. Yeah, so, that's that's but that would I I hear you. I'm not totally I'm still struggling with this value language around some of those sure. things, but I hear what you're saying. So so anyway, now yeah, I lost I'm my not train of to, thought. I'm not Where trying were we to going? derail you. The, you're, no, the, you're point, just saying, the point is yeah. this is hard. The point is this is, is hard. hard. And and if we're actually inviting people in to do hard work, I think that's I think that's actually what stops a lot of us is is the fact that like you know, you and I are having a conversation about how woody this, and I don't know, like how difficult it all is. Right. And, and and that is an illustration of why people tend to not do this. Right. Like why we tend to just be like, give me an answer and let's keep it moving. Um, Particularly, particularly if you have internalized a deep, deep level of sexual shame, fear, and anxiety around this, where some people, as you said, are going to read my book and the mere reading process is going to be so hard for them, right? Um, Let alone to go through and think about 
uh, all the stuff from their own life that um, that is being triggered by that reading process and to spend time with that, like real deep, meaningful time with that and to think about their value system and to do that deconstruction and do that reconstruction. Like this is not easy, you know? And so for me, I think, I think a lot of it has to do with, we need to do this work as adults, not just because of our own sort of freedom or whatever you, you want to use for language around that and our own ability to to navigate life for ourselves but because to bring it full circle back to how this conversation started because we will otherwise pass down what we learned we will pass it down silently or we will pass it down with words we will pass it down invisibly or we will pass it down with clear you know metaphors that we are illustrating yep. whatever it is yep. and that is the alternative that that this world continues and that the next generation um you know has to has to go through yet another adaptation of an old norm rooted in some very difficult things that need to be reevaluated and it's our turn. It's our turn to do it because, because people, because studies show that kids don't learn what you say. They learn what they see. Okay. So I have to respect your time. We've skipped over a ton of stuff that's in the book. Some of it we covered with Tina Sellers on the first purity culture episode. So that's okay. One thing we didn't talk about with her um, and that I promised someone we would talk about is this covering up of sex abuse as briefly. Well, I want to start by sharing something I actually read yesterday. So this woman, Rachel Den Hollander, I might be saying that wrong. She's the first woman who came up and uh, accused that gymnastics coach, Nassar, um, who, who went to jail. But she was abused in her church setting younger before she was doing gymnastics or before she was uh, with that guy. And um, so there's an, uh, an article she wrote um, in the Washington Post. I'm going to link to that in the show notes if people want to read it. But here's a little excerpt. I also learned the other side of the story. Many of our friends, a number of them lay leaders and prominent people in the church, didn't see my parents' actions as protective. This is when her parents sort of thought this guy was sketchy, this, this college guy, and, and kind of uh, were setting up some boundaries between him and her. Because I hadn't verbalized any report of abuse, my parents' response was viewed as an accusation made with no proof, and the expertise of the sexual assault counselors was discounted by many because they used materials by psychologists and licensed therapists. The fact that these psychologists were Christian didn't really matter. The materials were, quote, outside scripture, unquote, so they couldn't be trusted. So... (laughs) As quickly, I read that article. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. So as concisely as you can, we haven't gone into all this stuff. We didn't get into the four stumbling blocks that you list, which I wanted to, which is awesome. I mean, it's not awesome. It's really great material. Draw a line for us from purity culture to the assumptions that lead to really covering up sexual abuse in the church. You know, we see it in the Catholic church, but it's it's increasingly becoming uh, part of the evangelical and, and non-Catholic Protestant Uh, public conversation as well. In the book, I talk about the classification of sexual assault and rape and abuse in purity culture. And I mean that in two different ways. One, uh, the fact that that sexual assault and rape and abuse becomes literally classified information. It is systemically covered up and silenced uh, in ways that are 
so common <laughs> that I am not even surprised when I hear the stories anymore. And you're right that it is new that we are talking about this in evangelical culture, but I can guarantee uh, that this is not new in evangelical culture. This has been going on for a very long time. And the second thing that I mean by this term classification is that it is literally misclassified, that it is classified as sex instead of as violence, which is what it is. It is violence. It is not sex. And when it's classified as sex, which is what happens when you actually don't talk about it, which purity culture has nothing to say about consent, right? Um, what it what happens is you have these um, rape experiences categorized um, and therefore assessed by the rules of purity culture. So purity culture tells you that men and boys have a sexual drive that is just a core part of them and that they might do something, but that they're forgivable. Whereas women, um, you know, we aren't very sexual in our minds, but our bodies are inherently sexual in they inspire sexual drive in men and boys. Now, remember, this is a heteronormative, of course, frame. Um, but, you know, so therefore, we, it is our responsibility as women and girls to protect ourselves, sure, by covering up our bodies and things like that, but moreover, who we're really protecting. And the language really makes this clear because we don't talk about protecting ourselves very much. What we talk about is needing to protect the men and boys, you know, we were often told growing up, listen, ladies, sure, you can wear whatever you want, but do you really want to do that to your brothers, right? Like for your brothers, yeah. put on that, that floor length skirt, you know? And, and that was, it was this sort of language around you not just being damaged, but you being dangerous, right? A threat to others by your impurity, your impure dress, your impure flirtation, your impure asking some guy to take a walk with you, which probably was, you know, definitely you hitting on him because why would you ask to go on a one-on-one -on -one walk with someone for any other reason? You know, whatever it was, right? And so, so that's the narrative, now, you play that out in a violent situation, and you have, you have that narrative layered over it. It's a narrative of what impurity did she bring that inspired it? You know, what was she wearing? What had she said? What had she done? How is this her fault? Because within this worldview, we don't have to talk about consent, because if girls and women would just do their jobs— if they would just be utterly non-sexual and never inspire any sexual thoughts or feelings until we get until they get married, at which point they will suddenly uh, blossom <laughs> and all sexual you know expression will be blissful. You know, if they would just do their jobs, then we don't actually have to talk about any of this because there won't be any sexual violence. It's just like how we don't have to address systemic race issues if everyone just becomes a Christian. <laughs> <laughs> it's right, a very yeah. similar move. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. It's, wow, it, yeah. it's, it's evangelicalism's focus, uh, exclusive focus on individualism and, and nothing systemic. It's, it's, it's very related, I think, in that uh, respect. Um, shit. It's just, uh, there, so <laughs> the shit was in reaction to what you said in my heart uh, imploding. But one really good example of this in the book is you, one of your subjects, your interview subjects, she tells a story of being raped in college. She comes home. Her dad's a pastor. And the first question her dad asks her is, 
what were you wearing? And it's heartbreaking. Yeah. And, and, you know, I have to tell you the number of times that I've heard exactly that story, whether it's somebody going to their pastor or whether it's somebody going to their father or whoever it is, the number of times that I have heard someone say the first question I was asked was, what were you wearing? I, I mean, I can't even wrap my head around how common this is. And I think this is I think, you know, for someone like me who does these interviews, who has been doing them for over a decade, you know, I really see how prevalent and how systemic this stuff is because I just hear it in story after story after story. And I think for a lot of people, because we don't talk about sexuality, you know, they, they don't understand and see how common it is. So I think it looks like anomalies, right? That story that Laura tells is heartbreaking. And I think some people might hear it and think what an awful circumstance that has to do with her father and his, his experience of a wrong interpretation of purity culture. And what they don't realize is that he was trained to have that response. He was taught to have that response. And so many other people have been. And the trauma of the response to rape for many people I've interviewed is much, much more difficult to recover from uh, than even the rape itself, they often tell me. That makes sense. Uh, Bear with me for one second. I think that what might be going on when the dad or the pastor says that is what it, it doesn't necessarily reveal that they're bad people. What it reveals is what they understand about the causal mechanisms of rape. So for instance, if someone comes to me and says, I was trying to talk to my mom about Trump and she reacted, uh, her response was yada, yada, yada. My question usually is how much Fox news does she watch? Now, what that tells me is I believe that the causal mechanism for Republican parents citing certain slogans is that they watch Fox News where they hear the slogan and they watch a lot of it. And so it really gets in and then they repeat it. Now, maybe that mom doesn't watch any Fox News. And so my causal explanation is faulty. If she does, then in that case, my causal explanation is accurate. But what it says that that I go to that, I say, how much Fox News is the first question I ask, because I place a lot of value on the power of Fox News. So if dad or pastor says, what were you wearing? If that's their first question, they believe that there's this underlying sexual tension, maybe that is always there between men and women. And it's going to be in stasis. Nothing's going to happen until woman dresses like X. That is the primary cause. It's the, it's not the only cause because there's a whole, whatever, there's all the tension and there's the genders and there's whatever, but that's the proximate cause. That's the kind of final cause. Oh, Mm -hmm. you dressed slutty. And then that initiates sexual contact. Do you think that's right? Yeah, you hit it. Yeah. Out of the park. And that causal, that causal, you know, logic is deeply embedded into purity culture. And so exactly. it's, it's something that, um, and purity culture is bigger, I would say, than than the religious community and within which I was raised. I would say we live in a purity culture, um, broadly speaking. Well, I would just also, I think Fox News is often bigger than church cultures that people happen to be in. Uh, our, certainly our sociopolitical cultural identity, which now are all the same thing, and there's just two of them increasingly, is more determinative of our actions, our beliefs, our desires, our identities than our Christian faith. And that's true on the right and the left, 
but I think that explains Trump and evangelicals to to a large extent. Um, and it also ex- it also explains the inability to listen to Trump voters by people on the left because their sociocultural political identity is stronger than their Christian identity. Um, but that's another episode. We did promise we would end on hope. I know we're way over time. I could talk to you for eight hours about this stuff. It's fascinating. People should read the book. There's so much in there. I will link to it in the notes. But Linda, let's end on some hope. I haven't finished the book, so I haven't gotten to the hope. And I'm sitting here in pretty utter despair at uh, all the impasses we find ourselves at. But, of course, there is hope because you can talk about this. People have told their story. They're not going to raise their daughters this way. Um, If I have a daughter, I'm not going to raise her this way. What else is hopeful about this going forward? I mean, for me, the hope really is around the conversation in many ways. You know, there's there is a new moment that we are in right now. When I when I was first experiencing these things myself, there was nothing. I remember looking for books. I remember looking for articles. I remember looking for websites. You know, there was just nothing. And over the course of the last, you know, years since I started experiencing this 20 years ago, you know, there has been a, a little step and then a little step and then a little step. And now, even within the last year, things have really started to shift. And we're now starting to have so much more conversation about these things than we were before. We're acknowledging things. And what I find is that this, the reason that is hopeful to me is because for me, the process of healing from from these messages and, and creating a new way of understanding the world that, that allows allowed for um allowed for me to be who I am and to be at peace you know uh was via this process of the sacred story exchange you know it was going through these interviews where I repeatedly would just tell my story over and over and over and then would hear other people tell their stories in ways that helped me to understand my own story differently and helped me to uh you know understand the world differently and understand what we had been a part of and that process you know, I sometimes, you know, describe it as like a 2.0 narrative therapy, right? If narrative therapy is telling your own story over and over and over and piecing together the fragments so that you can deal with something as a whole, you know, the, um, the story exchange process, the sacred story exchange is, you know, a deeper experience of narrative therapy because you're with other people and you can piece together their piece of the puzzle and their piece of the puzzle and start to sew all those together to create a even greater sense of the whole that we can actually deal with as a society. I don't know that we, you know, I, I, I can't tell you when we've been in a moment like this before, right, where we can actually have these conversations. And so I do think that there's tremendous hope. And I, I think the way that people join this hope is by telling their story, which is why my nonprofit, Break Free Together, is all about story exchange. How do I create spaces and ways for people to join with the people who are close to them and with strangers and really get into the reality of your experience and hold the reality of someone else's in the complexity, in the questions, you know, as we start to even just identify the mess, <laughs> you know, which is a core step to ever being able to find our way through it. Yeah, maybe we're just kind of at the beginning of this process at a culture-wide level. Many individuals have gone all the way through it, but that's but right. at a collective conscious level, we haven't. And so that's exciting. It's exciting to be at the beginning of that. 
Yeah. And I, and I agree there, there have certainly been, you know, previous movements. I mean, there's like the sexual revolution, right. But, you know, but that even wasn't a conversation around healthy, nuanced ethics around sexuality that was culture wide, right? Like this is, this is different. The moment that we're in now of, um, of speaking and of voice is I think very distinct and very new. Yeah. I mean, I will say I've been married almost 10 years and my marriage has suffered significant consequences as a result of purity culture. And it is only in the last 12 months that I have put those concepts together. So, and I'm like into Christian culture, theology questions. I mean, I'm, I'm into this stuff. And, and so there is, I, I recognize something new, uh, something different. Well, Linda, thank you so much. Uh, I have a link to the book. It's called pure. Uh, let me see if I can remember the subtitle of memory at evangelical movement that imprisoned women and how I broke free. How close is that? Not <laughs> inside, inside the evangelical movement that shamed a generation of young women and how I broke free. Yes. Okay. So there's a link to that. I'm also going to have a link to your personal website, which I'm sure has uh, the nonprofit as well. Thank you for going over. Thank you for uh, going off script. Um, this is a fantastic conversation. I'm looking back at my waveforms and I talked more than I had planned. Uh, thank you for bearing with me. And I think it was fascinating. Yeah, it was a really great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thanks to Scott Sanjemi for editing today's interview with Linda. Next week, Dustin Kensru, lead singer of the band Thrice former worship director at Mars Hill Church, Seattle, which infamously blew up a couple years ago, uh, and also founder of a new podcast called Carry the Fire. That was a really fun conversation, and I'm looking forward for you guys, uh, looking forward to you guys hearing it. Uh, normal stuff here. Join the Patreon if you'd like, patreon.com slash dancoke, or youhavepermissionpod.com, click become a patron. Email me, you have permission podcast at gmail.com. Uh, and thank you guys for everything. See you next week.